farming is like super rewarding, like deep in your DNA. Like there's something about like raising generations of animals and breeding them and then raising them and knowing that how they were raised and what they ate and then like butchering them and eating them and like feeding your family and feeding your friends and knowing you're putting like, it's like more, it's like extremely like rewarding in a way that like I haven't really found in a lot of other professions. Welcome to the Tangled Tap Root, where we explore the unique stories of small-scale farmers in the Midwest. I am your host, Kristen. I'm Jackson. And I'm John Cowan. And this is a production of Milk and Hummus. Milk and honey? It's actually milk and hummus. We make flavorful hummus and ready-to-drink plant-based lattes that focus on locally sourced ingredients, sustainable packaging, and the humble chickpea. In this episode, we're going to talk to Autumn Sai and Dave Bloom of Such and Such Farm. They operate a 120-acre homestead and farm focusing on sustainable produce and responsibly raised animals. So think beautiful black Russian boar pigs. I don't know if that's the way you call them, but... <laughs> I think that's the appropriate name, yes. yes. Sounds respectable. Indeed. The dog's <laughs> name is Homie. I'm not sure about that. Homie. Homie the dog. What up? Are they, are they working animals? Are they just uh, along for the ride? No, when you're on a farm, you're always going to be a working animal. Everybody earns their way. They do. What does homie do? I, I got to know. I got to know. Is he like a, a sheep herder? Is there an official position? Uh, Probably a goat herder, not a sheep herder. And perhaps a pig wrangler. I don't know. <laughs> a pig wrangler. No, actually, we visited the farm a That's few months ago. It's true. We know that the fences do a great job at wrangling the pigs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the hogs. <laughs> yes. And they're kind of big and slow a little bit. No, no, and not slow. Now, trust me. They're stinking cute. They are. One thing I noticed when I was getting a small tour, the pig pens, there was like this small structure and there was a rustling of feed and it was like a clown car and you had maybe six different pigs just rumble out one oh, after another. And it's like, I could not believe that there were that many animals in there. Oh my gosh. Yikes. All on their own free free will. These animals sound like yeah, like they're ready to ready to party. party. <laughs> I work with you too much. Yeah, obviously. we know each other. <laughs> they have so much space to roam around on their farm. I mean, they're they're eating acorns. They're eating yeah, backs up to a forest, right? Right. They're they're in the forest. They're eating acorns. They're eating all sorts of wild, lush produce and root compost around. scraps. <laughs> right. Right. Yum. Uh, they were, they were saying they were getting the a delivery of like, avocados, you know, so they, they Heck yeah. Most of us can't even afford them, and these pigs get, like, the leftovers. I, I feel bad refuse. kind of calling them yeah. these pigs. That's not what I meant. Like, these pigs. Oh, yeah, pig. <laughs> no, I refuse to spend more than, like, a dollar on an avocado. Me too. 99 cents is my max. Is the max. Anything more than that is, like, ridiculous. And these pigs are just getting all of the, not just avocados, but, like, they were talking about, like, throwing, like, all of their leftover yes. vegetables and everything to these, the to good these pigs. stuff. It's true. Well, I think I, I thought it was really cool. They were re- reusing, so it's like nothing necessarily went to waste it's like at a such whole and such farm. Cycle. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, hey, what we don't use here, we'll just use at a different place and it'll be useful. So yeah. I thought that was cool. Or we're not making like carrot top pesto. Well, we can throw our carrot tops in the pig pen. Like they'll eat it, you know? Absolutely. So it's like there's always a place for those scraps to go. Yeah, what for a beautiful sure, for sure, for sure, cycle. For sure. 
It was like this quest to become self-sustaining. Yeah. They like had this strong interest. They were compelled to be homesteaders. Absolutely. Which I think is lovely. It's something I kind of secretly dream about. So their story in particular you know, just yeah, lured me in. No, my boyfriend says that. He's like, oh my he's like, my dream is just to like make all my own food from scratch. And I'm like, wow, my dream is to like never cook <laughs> ever. No, they they started with with the veggies. And what was cool about the story, it was like supply and demand. Like it was like they were working with local, which is awesome. They were working with local restaurants and chefs and they were like, hey, what kind of vegetables do you need? And so they and then just planted what was necessary, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Having a friend that's a chef is a great way to get plugged in if you're trying to sell food to somebody. Right. So sure. <laughs> they had their end. And it was a great business model, you know, trying to like see what what unique produce would be wanted from a restaurant so that there's automatically going to be that demand and it's going to be pulling that demand. And so, uh, yeah. And they just went, went, went along with it. It was the the veggies and then uh, in the wintertime when the veggies weren't selling as much, they were like, hey, maybe we should do animals. I just I love the natural progression of this farm. I think it was just I think it was super cool. And, and I respect it. I respect it a lot. And speaking of the farm table or farm dinners, I should, I should say, it really is like this fusion between agritourism and what you would conceptually think as a farm to table dinner at a restaurant. Because, I mean, you're driving to the farm, you're going out of the city, you know, you're driving, I don't know, however long, half hour, an hour to get to this destination outside of uh, St. Louis. You know, you're actually getting to walk around the grounds to see not only where the where the pigs are roaming. You know, there's a pond. There's, uh, you know, the, the row crops. I mean, we got to see goat goats. Yeah, we goats, got to chickens. see all the goats. Prancing they were goats. super cute. Yes. And the, the the whole atmosphere in general on the farm and in this event space, I guess, this, that they converted is pretty awesome. And having local chefs come and utilize their produce and pork, you know, pork and meat, meat products really is a pretty cool way to show the versatility and flavor of the region. Yeah. It's like a direct reflection of not just region, but also an extreme seasonality of like a hyper focus of what's available then. And that's pretty neat. And what a cool opportunity for the chefs that get to be plugged in there and sure. to get to extract and use and manipulate all these locally grown and raised things in their menu and directly reflect the farm on their dishes. Like, very wonderful opportunity. Some of the structures that have been fabricated from Dave, you know, they look like giant bird cages that are used to smoke cabbages or cook the the different types of dishes that are being served for these events. And it's it's pretty cool to, to over watch. The fire pit. Yeah, yeah, over the fire yeah. pit. And it's like a immersive experience, immersive sensory experience because you get yeah. to you know, talk with the people preparing some things, get to snag on a couple treats and then... And enjoy the beautiful scenery. Yeah. And talk to people. Yeah. Because sure. there, it's like a long table rose. So that opens up the discussions with your unknown neighbor. It adds that element of community, kind of like we were talking about. What's so interesting about the, the element of community in this with such and such farms, because they had mentioned that they eat less meat now that they like grow pig and grow like the, you know, they, they raise the animals themselves. They're sort of like, OK, well, like now that we see where it's coming from and we see like how much of an effort Labor. that you have to put in Massive. to all that stuff. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, OK, 
it's very cool how self-aware this this farm is for sure yes and the amount of respect that they have for the land and the animals and Absolutely. you can it's reflected in all of their intentionality so dave's background is in industrial design and construction whereas autumn's background i believe is in journalism and more of the i would say creative creative side of things it's so interesting to see the progression between not knowing or, or, or saying you don't know how to do, let's say, f- farming into developing all these different techniques to farm as well as your actual footprint of your, of your farm. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm sure even their boat, like their unique backgrounds help them a lot because, I mean, having a background in construction and you have like all of this land yeah, with nothing but growth to do, like I feel so like that helps, that helps them so much. And then even the, the creative side, yeah, she was able to just find creative solutions. And she had mentioned in the, in the interview that she turned to blogs a lot to help them figure out what they were doing because they were in over their head. Yeah, and if you visit the farm like we got to do, like you can see these like artistic and creative outbursts scattered throughout the farms too since all the goats have names and portraits, you know, oh, and really there's do. just yeah. some sure. very special touches that maybe set this farm apart from others. It's beautiful. It's really well laid out. You definitely don't feel like they had no idea what they were doing. When you listen to this interview, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like they were like way in over their heads. They had no idea what they were doing and they just kind of like stumbled upon this. Would you go and visit this farm? It's like, wow, this is like beautifully placed and beautifully designed. Everyone knows what they were doing. And, you know, they've got pigs and goats and chickens. Oh, my. Hi, I'm Autumn Sai. Yeah, I'm Dave Flo. We run a such and such farm. Well, Autumn, Autumn, you run it. I just fix broken things and lift heavy stuff. But we're here together. Yeah, we are. Aw. Well, thank you. Thanks for that beautiful Sunday having me out on the farm. Yeah, thanks for coming out, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard. So we just wanted to touch on a few items, maybe a little bit of all of the origins day to day and then fall into some, some challenges. But what inspired both of you to become farmers? Yeah, that all started with you. Yeah, my my bad. <laughs> I guess I, for a while, I was a welder at the city museum working for Bob, building big, weird, crazy stuff. And two of the guys on the crew were Ricky Fortner and Kurt Nickemeyer, lived in Jefferson County, and they did some farming. And I always kind of liked the idea of like growing your own food and homesteading and living hand to mouth. It's like, like the most punk rock thing you can do is need as few, cut out all the middlemen, like, you know, just grow your own tomatoes and you chop wood and make your own heat. You don't need to like to pay the gas company to keep you warm. You just do it. And then Kurt and Ricky were like the two most like capable people I've ever met in my entire life. And literally like can just like build anything. And I had a construction background. Then in, in the first recession in 2008, this farm became available and we just threw like a super low ball offer at it expecting them to tell us to fuck off. But they were like, yeah, sure. They sold it to us, really? uh, to me and my dad and some family members and stuff. And so we're out here just kind of homesteading at first. And then eventually- We had no idea what we were doing. Yeah, we didn't know what we were doing. We are just like, we'll grow some tomatoes and some kale and maybe raise a goat. And then uh, we started just selling everything we had. We had some friends, our buddy Josh Paletti had started working at the Libertine and got jo- brought some of our produce to Josh Galliano. And then Josh squared the two of them, just were like, we'll buy everything you got and we'll introduce you to all these other chefs. And they were like, we'll buy everything you got. And so we just wound up 
kind of having this business where we sat down with these chefs, you know, we're like a, uh, you know, you're a chef, you're an artist and we have like a paint factory. We'll make you anything you want. And we'd sit down with all the seed catalogs and they'd circle like a thousand things. And we'd just sort of like narrow it down. And we'd like did custom private boutique specialty farming specifically for fine dining, for, for chefs to grow specific ingredients, which is nice because everything we grew is already sold basically. Like they're waiting on it. And, a, I mean, it sounds like zero to a hundred pretty quickly. Yeah, it was terrifying. Okay. Um, <laughs> That learning curve was very steep. Uh, yeah. Did your their father farm or your no, grand, no. grandfather? No. Nobody. Nobody. No. Grandfather's grandfather? No. Not as far <laughs> as I know. I have some maybe distant farming experience on my mom's side. You know, she was raised in Oklahoma in the Ozarks, but nobody, like, we grew up in the city or the suburbs. We had never even, like, raised, we had a dog, and that was, like, the only animal we ever raised. I grew okay. weed before. Sure. Yeah, and I had an aloe plant inside <laughs> the house, but then I killed it. So, like, we had... Absolutely no farming experience None. when we started. We just wanted to start homesteading and then we kind of fell in love with it. And we had a lot of great mentors. We had like a garden mentor. We had a chicken mentor. We had a goat mentor. And then all of those people together. Pig mentor together, Carl. Pig mentor and like construction building mentors. And so like all of these people in our lives really helped shape who we are and how the business came to be. And also back in the day, like blogs were a huge thing. And so we learned a lot through blogs and through mentorship. And YouTube videos and stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, we were really lucky we had good people. Like when we first, I remember uh, Kurt that I was talking about, him and Sharon, they've raised goats and sheep for a long time. So the first time we were kidding. Which means when the baby goats are being born. Baby, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yes. baby kids getting born. We didn't know what we were doing. And Sharon was just cool with us calling her at like four in the morning, three thirty in the morning, and be like, "The goats, they're giving, but we don't know what we're doing." She's like, "Well, if you have questions, you just call me on back." And so we, like, you know, we call her back, and we're like, "You know, I don't know, like, the baby seems okay, but the mom, you know, it says online should be like cleaning it, and she's kind of doing that, but the baby won't like nurse, and the mom's kind of nudging it away." And she's like, "Well, you got to take that mama, and you pin her up against the wall. You take that baby, you put it on the teat. Who's the goat, and who's the human here? You make them do what you need to do." And we're like, "Okay, thanks, Sharon." She's like, "All right, call me back if you need." thing. It was in, super valuable because we, if not, I don't know, probably would have. I don't know what we, we would have done. Probably would have fucked it all up. Because that's what happened with a lot of the other things is just the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Farming's like really hard. Sure. So, I mean, it sounds like you had a good web or network of both uh, people who are familiar with farming or animal husbandry excuse yeah. me, mm -hmm. and uh, growing. So it's basically you're reaching out to friends and, and acquaintances and them showing you as well as self self-learning online and yeah everything from scratch yeah and then the like the business side of it just sort of grew organically actually like monetizing things and looking at things like efficiency wise and like how do we actually make a living off of doing this and make sure anyone who works for us is able to have a steady income and maybe we'll have a steady income that'd be nice and that that's like a whole other side of it too arguably trickier than like keeping plants and animals alive so around 2008 you get the property you educate yourself and you start with what sort of concept straight to restaurant or chefs and uh, growing for chefs is that yeah after we started selling to the libertine and to ryan who was working at juniper at the yeah. time and a couple other people we started we made the business plan after we did the first couple of sales so we didn't start a business plan and then and then seek out the avenues. Like the avenues came to us and we're like, okay, then maybe we can structure our business this way. And so for the first 
I don't know how many years, five, six years, we were almost exclusively private sales and restaurant sales. Yeah, pretty much. You know, we were really lucky that like kind of right out the bat, like our demand exceeded our ability to supply. Like we, you know, just didn't, you know, we sold everything that we grew and we didn't really know what we were doing. So we'd have like crop, total crop loss sometimes on certain crops and like, and then, you know, as we got to figure it out, things got more and more efficient, but like, you know, certain, you know, techniques work well for some vegetables and they don't work well for others and like being able to uh and then as we got into doing the pigs and stuff that just kind of accelerated then too because we do protein vegetables and dairy all on one farm which is hard like you know it's like most places just specialize in one of those things and we kind of do a little bit of everything which uh did you start first vegetables were first vegetables gardening first and then a lot of those vegetables i mean they're going to take months on to bear a product, did you start off with some maybe like let's say greens or something to that was maybe short shorter time frame to market or? Well, I remember the very first thing that we ever picked out of the garden was a banana pepper. I still have a picture of that banana pepper. I was like, oh my gosh, I just grew this <laughs> so, amazing banana pepper. So some people have like their first dollar they made. You have a banana pepper. You yes. Pressed it, put it on the wall. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah I have it framed. Right. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I have that. And then for some reason, we grew like so much yellow crook neck squash, yeah, I which why. I would never grow now. No one wants Nobody wants squash. it. But for some reason, we grew so much of it. And we just had like... Like the seeds from Home Depot or something. Yeah. Like and we had just like like 100 pounds of yellow crook neck squash, which now looking back, like I would never grow that now. Yeah. So is that the the one that has like a like bell shaped and then just curves around? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's not super tasty. Oh, okay. But it's not strictly, or, it's not ornamental, right? Or is it? No, people, I mean, no, you, people you eat, eat it. it. Right. Yeah. It's just not in like, I would say like the flavor profile of what we would grow now. It's just easy to grow. It's like, okay. uh, it's yeah. a very standard squash. It's not like, you know, a, you know, a delicata or like other, Like a zephyr squash. A zephyr really squash nice. or, yeah. you know, any of the other types of more like heirloom interesting, unique types of squash. It's just like crookneck squash. It's like the most basic squash there is. It's yes. good though. I mean, we've, I've ate a ton of it. But, yeah. Um, and we did that year. We had like hundreds of pounds of it. I remember that, but I vividly remember the ban- banana pepper was the very first thing we did. Yeah. But like with vegetables, like you kind of like you're saying, you can't grow them year round unless you have a big greenhouse that's heated. And at that time we definitely... We didn't have any greenhouse. We have one now, but we don't have any then. So we started getting into pigs and goats and stuff just in an attempt to like make money in January and February. You know, like we, you know, the bills keep coming whether or not the garden does anyway. And then I'd been, you know, and started to look for other things that we could do. Like, you know, we're selling firewood and wheatgrass. Wheatgrass. Yeah, we do. Wheat. Remember wheatgrass? Yeah, I do. Does every, anybody remember wheatgrass? I don't know if that's a thing. When that was I a mean, big thing. I have it dehydrated. It's super easy to throw it in like a smoothie or something. But mm-hmm. we did um, all the wheatgrass for the Smoothie Kings in St. Louis for really? a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, what? We, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. how we um, kept afloat throughout winter okay. is we would sell like we would grow trays of wheatgrass in the greenhouse and then deliver it to I don't know how many Smoothie Kings so around it was town. like 18 at one point. Yeah. And so that's how we survived winters through wheatgrass. It sucked. <laughs> like growing like one or two trays of wheatgrass in your kitchen window is no big deal. Growing like 100 trays of wheatgrass is a whole other thing. I mean, it was fine. It was it was cool. It was profitable, but it's, you know, it's not the most enjoyable type of farming that there is. I guess it's similar like microgreens in a way. We did a bunch of microgreens too and stuff like that. But that was a little bit later on after we had the greenhouse. You know, for the first first couple of years, we just kind of like scraped together. We didn't have a walk-in. We didn't have anything, you know. So we'd have to, we knew we had to do deliveries on 
like Friday, we would just like start at sunrise on Thursday and work for like 20 hours straight just because we don't even go bad and just stack it all up inside of our house because the house was at least 70 degrees because we had air conditioning and outside's like 95. And then that was our walk-in basically. And then we had to deliver everything like immediately because we couldn't hold it. So we'd like work a crazy long day harvesting and then work a crazy long day delivering and collect all the money. And then we're like, this is not efficient. This is not gonna, this doesn't work. And so then we're like, we, we got to get a walk-in and we got to start investing in infrastructure. And so slowly we did. Okay. You're growing, you have your logistics between your the produce and the driving efforts. When did the animal husbandry sort of come into effect? So we started out with five chickens, basically right away. Lambert and Lynette gave us chickens. Yeah. Lambert and Lynette gave us our first like- Shout out to Lambert yeah, and Lynette. Five or six chickens. And I always say that chickens are the gateway animal because right. you can start with chickens, but then like, oh, well- Let's just do a goat or two. I mean, we can do a pig just for ourselves and that kind of thing. Yeah. So we started with five chickens. And then I would say it was like our first year we had five chickens. And then I would say by our second year, we had two goats. And then we ended up with three goats. And then six goats. And then now we have about 15 dairy goats. So, I mean, were the chickens multiplying as equal to the goats or... I mean, um, and what was your sort of intention with the chickens? I mean, it was for meat, is for eggs, for, for just all the for above? yeah, it was just eggs. for eggs. And then we did butcher like some of the roosters once they got bigger for meat. Then we're like, hey, if we have our own vegetables, we have our own eggs. Wouldn't it be cool if we had our own milk too. And then we got dairy goats. I think the the following year because I begged and begged Dave for dairy goats, and so we had those. And then I would say the year after we got dairy goats, then we started with a couple of pigs. We started with like eight or so pigs. And that was by the time that we had been working with restaurants for a couple of years and we needed to diversify. We kind of want to be like a one-stop shop, one for ourselves. So we could have in the wintertime, especially when everybody has that run, crazy run on eggs, bread and milk. We're like, well, we can just go outside. We can get our own milk. We can get our own eggs. We can make our own bread. But we didn't know what we were doing. We just went and got, I went to yeah. um, one of our neighbors, Lori Bush, and bought two little Nubian kids. And I knew I don't want a goat, so I just like, put them into the door and like kind of she was, I knew she was hanging out in the kitchen. So I just opened the door like six inches and put two goats inside the house and closed the door. So when she looked up, there was just like goats bouncing around the kitchen. I was to freak out through the door. It was pretty funny. But I didn't think about that. It was like create in the middle of winter. We didn't have anywhere to keep them really. And so they just had to like live in our bathroom. <laughs> they did. Yeah. Yeah. They got like, they got like goat shit on the ceiling. It, it, was, it was wild. Yeah. We brought some like hay into the bathtub so they could stay warm. And yeah, it was during the polar vortex. Of, I forgot what year that was, but it was when like, te- maybe. yeah, when temperatures were like below freezing for like, two weeks straight and they just lived in our bathroom. Well, yeah. I mean, they, they climb and eat everything, right? Yeah. Everything. So, mm-hmm. so that was pretty, pretty Pretty wild then. Yeah. 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 When you have baby goats living in your bathroom, it smells like you got baby goats living in your bathroom. Mm -hmm. Sure. Was that to sustain, like have eventual milk for yourself or was that also sort of restaurant inspired? We knew that we would, because selling it to restaurants is is not really like legal. So like we kind of just wanted to be able to have milk and like raise livestock. Okay. And then we figured we would just kind of figure out what to do with it whenever we got milk. But we we wanted to get into more animal husbandry. And we knew we could sell raw milk like consumer to consumer. And we saw raw milk pages where people were buying it all the time. So we knew there was like a, like a market for it if we were able to produce it. But we didn't really have a particular outflow. We just like wanted goats, knew that we wanted to get into 
doing goats and knew when we had milk, we'd be able to sell it, but we didn't have like an established outlet for it. We just saw that there was a demand. And so we were just like, all right, well, we can, we'll figure that out later once we act. Cause you know, they're so young, they're not going to start producing for a while and you have to breed them too. Mm-hmm. And so we had to borrow a buck to breed them and to get them to go into milk. And then they're pregnant. You have more goats and more goats and it just takes off from there. Sure. I mean, I can imagine that after you're establishing your farm, you're getting your produce, you get everything going. What impact would you say the goats would have as well as the chickens? I mean, is it something that's that's going to help out your produce side of things? Or, I mean, our goats, you know, they eat everything. Is that going to help in any way at, at this time on your farm? Or Well, it helps with waste. So we found um, like whenever we're like, gleaning the last of the kale or like broccoli stalks or things like that, it can go into our compost, but it can also feed our goats too. So it's really healthy and nutritious for them. Kind of same thing with the chickens as we were, you know, harvesting from the garden and we had like a bad tomato or a bad looking cucumber, we would just like throw it over the fence to the chickens and, you know, feed them that way. Same thing with the goats. But I think the goats too was just something, a way to diversify our business. And then eventually, not right away, but eventually we found out like, hey, with the goat's milk, we can make soap, we can make cheese, we can make cajeta. So we have uh, multiple avenues of revenue through just this one animal too. And that helped diversify the business and kind of keep things going year round. Expand everything like vertically and horizontally so that like we have a bunch of different kind of things that produce products. Like we have the garden makes products, the goats makes products, the pigs make products and kind of what we're able to turn those outputs into is sort of up to us. So the pigs produce primal cuts uh, for butchers. They produce whole carcasses for butchers. They do retail cuts for retail sales that are packed. They make, we take the lard and make it into soap. You know, we've taken the skulls and like bleached them and sold them like ornamentally. And then with the goats, you know, there's milk, you know, we can make cajeta, we can make more soap out of that. The garden, you know, provides for restaurants, for a CSA, for farm dinners, and just trying to take like these outputs that we have and do as much we can with them. So like a lot of, and then expand that, you know, as as much as possible. So like then we started doing maple syrup because we have a bunch of maple trees. So we started tapping trees and cooking down maple syrup. And restaurants would sell those. We'd sell them in retail. We st- I started selling a bunch of firewood because I was making, we were working with all these restaurants and they were like, oh, we need firewood. And I was like, well, we, I got trees, you know, we'll sell you firewood. And then I started making fire pits because I was a welder for years and years. And then that led people to buy more firewood. And I started making kind of wood-fired cooking apparatuses, rotisseries and asados and stuff like that, which led people to buy more pigs and just sort of everything. Trying to figure out that if we have something, you know, how can we generate not just like one vulnerable revenue stream through it, but like a bunch of different things, which has been helpful, especially when we had like the pandemic and stuff like that, that like when restaurants just like all of a sudden just like didn't exist anymore, like just like that, you know, if that had happened a couple years before that, when like 80% of our business was all restaurants, we'd have been in really, really big trouble, but we kind of diversified by then and we had a CSA and we had started to do farmer's markets and we had retail soap sales and we had a bunch of different smaller businesses that all had revenue streams that went into the hole. So the fact that like there was no restaurants anymore, we were severely inconvenienced. We weren't like completely screwed. Whereas like I think years before that we would have been. And so we're kind of trying to keep all of our eggs out of one basket, no pun intended. Right. So for business, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to be to diversify both horizontally and vertically, but then also just on the farm. I think all of this, our systems work together has really helped like the health of the farm and then like the health of our plants and our goats. Like, for example, whenever we were making the 
the pig pastures, we had to clear, I don't know how many acres worth of About cedars, 20. 20, yeah, 20 acres worth of um, like cedar trees. And we took those cedar trees and we made fence posts out of them. So all of that went to good use. Whenever we muck out the goat barn, all of that, you know, goat droppings and straw and hay is really, really nice for our compost. The waste produce, as I said, it either goes in the compost, it goes to the chickens, or it goes to the goats. It keeps all or of the them pigs. healthy. Or the pigs. It Most keeps the them the really healthy too. So try to create like a healthy, sustainable system where all the systems also make money, but they also help each other out and keep keep everything else going. Like our little ecosystem here, like everything is well-fed, everything is well taken care of, and all of our little avenues all take care of each other too. Sure. And a lot of people don't understand or or. I've forgotten what the definition of sustainability is. You know, there's three main things that it has to do with not only the environment, but the economics. You know, being a sustainable business is having a good, like you said, diversity in your product lines. And then also society. So you're having a valuable service to the community, to to restaurants. That's pretty awesome. So I know that we, we jumped in. There's so much I wanted to unpack, uh, Dave. Sure. And one of the things being, of course, you said you had an industrial design background. Is mm-hmm. that correct? And you yep. worked at City Museum. And so how did that or, or did any of those skills transfer over on the farm? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of I've been doing construction work and, you know, I mean, for my whole life. And so like the kitchen that we just built, uh, that we were doing these private farm dinners and like, you know, we just, I mean, we treated that like we did all the other stuff. Like, I mean, we, we just built it, you know, we didn't hire, you know, we hired contractors when we had to, you know, cause you have to pull permits for electrical and plumbing things that I can't necessarily legally do myself, but we, you know, the things I can do myself, like we do, we pretty much DIY everything. Me and then my buddy, uh, my buddy Nemo, Nathan, that stays across the creek. I've been doing construction with him. He's been living out here with us since, with his wife, Tucker, since like day one. And so like me and Nemo and uh, kind of a bunch of other folks that have kind of came and gone throughout the years, we just build everything. We design and build everything. Like we put the shop up on the hill together. Like I did all the iron work and put it all together. We built that kitchen out. You know, we you know took the kitchen is basically was a stall we used to keep pigs in. It was 40 foot by 16 feet. And we uh, poured, you know, dug it out with a tractor, poured a floor, set all the plumbing, built the wall, put a new roof on it, insulated everything, cut all the FRP, put it all up, installed everything, you know, ran all the electric, ran all the plumbing, you know, and, and we do that with just about everything, like the greenhouse we built. And so like being able to do all that stuff ourselves saves a ton of money. Like, and, and I don't think we'd really have the, you know, any of the kind of obstacles would have been pretty insurmountable without being, if we just had to pay people for it. I mean, it's like really expensive to hire. I mean, I'm a contractor and like, you know, it's, it's expensive. Like, you know, like when we come out and do stuff, it costs money because you have to get there and take time. And if we had to pay for all those things, I don't think we would have made it. But luckily we're able to kind of do a lot of that stuff ourselves. And so being able to not only like build everything, but be able to design it and, you know, figure out like that pasture set up, the wagon wheel that we run the pigs in and like the way that's set up and be able to kind of look at like the overarching design of the the whole place and how these things work together. That's sort of a permaculture design approach, sort of there's a lot of that kind of way of viewing things in industrial design too. And then with the city museum, I just sort of learned from working there that like you can, you can build anything like, you know, just like anything. Like if you get a good team of guys together that are decently competent and have a decent plan and you just like, don't quit and just go hard at it. Like you'll get it, you'll get it done. You know, we put like Ferris wheels on the roof and build caves and just, you know, all the crazy shit at cement land and yeah, all work that with whatever materials you yeah, have just whatever too. You, got, you know, and that, you know, that building stuff, you don't need like brand new materials. Like you can make it 
cooler, more interesting and nicer using like recycled stuff. Yeah. And then also just being kind of resourceful in using what you got. Like, you know, I didn't know. I mean, we just like when we cleared the pastures up there, we left all the oak trees and nut bearing trees. So that's forage for all the pigs that are out there. All the cedars we ripped out with heavy equipment that we operated to be able to, so you don't have stumps everywhere else. You just, you know, there's just like a million stumps and then you can't grade out the ground. And so then we took our, the trees and milled a bunch of the lumber down to build stuff. We took them and set them and made fence posts out of them. We sold some of the fence posts and, you know, and being able to kind of take some of these different avenues and kind of capitalize on them. It was really helpful. A lot of that I just learned from working with Bob and Kurt and Ricky and everybody and, and going to design school. It was just, you know, just kind of took what I saw and copy paste, copy paste in our own situation. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's yeah. takeaways, resourcefulness and creativity for what you have and what you, what can be, I guess. You can make it work. Sure. You can make it work. It's hard, but you can make it work. And then let's get into a little bit of day to day. I mean, what about, I mean, you mentioned produce, it's, it's pretty diverse and dependent primarily on restaurants and what you want to grow as well, heirloom varieties. And, and then also you said milk goats. And then of course you have your, your pigs, correct? Those are the, the three, the three pillars here. Yeah. This time of year, you know, in the winter it's off season for, for the garden, but that means like all winter long, we're just planning and dreaming and brainstorming and redesigning. So right now we're, we're buying all the seeds for next year. So we start everything from seed in the greenhouse. We don't buy any extra starts. We make all those ourselves. So here pretty soon, we're going to start growing in the greenhouse again. And then it's taking care of our, our goats. We just had a bunch of babies born a couple of weeks ago. We're right in the middle of our kidding season. We're going to have a, the next round probably in about a month or so. This kidding season got a little stretched out this year. Yes, it is. It's going to be a long kidding season. But that means now we're in milking season too. So we're hand milking every morning. And then soon it'll be twice a day milkings in the morning and at night. And taking care of the, the goats, taking care of the pigs. And those are getting rebred too. And then also keeping the boiler going every day to keep everything nice and warm. Yeah. And planning everything out for next year. So like, let's say winter day-to-day operations versus let's say peak season day-to-day. What's, what are the differences? Oh, that we just don't come inside <laughs> at all. Okay. Yeah. So in the, in the peak season, you know, we'll get up in the morning, we are, you know, hand milking the goats by then we'll probably be hand milking at least six goats. And then it'll be, you know, taking care of the chickens, taking care of the pigs in the, peak of summer, it's sometimes watering the pigs at least two, three times a day when it gets really, really hot. So that takes, you know, quite a bit of time. We also have a deal with a produce stand in Festus. So in the summertime, we pick up about a truckload of waste produce every day. Or more. Or more. And it's giving those to the pigs. Like later today, we need to go pick up a half a pallet of avocados to feed the pigs. They just called us earlier today. So and do the avocados get fully Eaten, including like the pits and everything, or yeah, they don't. They'll, discre- they'll spit don't. out. No, they'll spit out the pits. Okay. Yeah, I, I think they eat them sometimes too. Maybe sometimes. Okay. They have strong jaws, and then also, then it's the garden. So it's it's a weeding in the garden. It's planting. It's harvesting. It's washing, mostly weeding, and then packaging. Because then we'll have you know our farmers markets, our CSA, our farm dinners. So I would say we're now we're able to sit inside and then do some office work and do some cleaning and brainstorming. In the summertime, we would just be out in the garden for the rest of the day. And then it gets dark and we're like, oh no, we didn't get half of the stuff done that we wanted to. But yeah, we'll just be outside constantly all day. We do a lot of construction in the winter too. Like that's yeah. the time we'll like build infrastructure, like, cause you have more time to focus on it and stuff where we'll get out and like stretch fence or it was built, Nemo just got done building that bridge over so we can move the goats across like a gully into a pa- different pasture and get them across the road, stuff like that. You know, any 
larger construction projects, we kind of try to gear those towards the winter time if we can. Because if not, you know, you'll get what what you know always seems to wind up happening is if we start giant construction projects during like peak season, like something's gonna give. Like either the project will take like ten times longer than it needs to, or we just like neglect the shit out of the garden and it sure. snowballs on us and there's just piles of weeds and they get up over on you and, and you can't get back out from under. The winter time's usually a good time to like do a lot of planning and figure out scheduling and start knocking out like building projects. Okay. And then how do you, let's say, um, balance all the tasks? I mean, is it just, just you? Do you have other people on your, on your farm that, that help day to day operations or? So we have, um, Nemo or Nathan, he's like our, our caretaker. He does a lot of the construction, a lot of the maintenance, a lot of the mowing, and he's full-time. Him and his wife, you know, live right across the creek from us. And he's been, I mean, Nemo moved in before I did. He's been here a really, really long time. And then we also have Carly, who right now is just coming out on the weekends, but she's probably going to be full-time come March or April, which is very helpful. And she's a godsend. She is amazing with the goats and the pigs and the garden. And then we have Ryan and Ashley from Farm Spirit. Those are like our our yeah business partners. So we do a lot of things with them. They're a huge help. And then I'm full-time at the farm. Dave, you're also busy with some of your other projects. So you're not on site as much anymore. But so it's me, Lydia, my, my two-year-old, Carly, Nemo, and then Ryan and Ashley help out. Yeah, that's, that's about it right now. Awesome. That's, that sounds great. One thing, Davey mentioned, you do produce maple syrup here? Yeah, we have. It, okay. it, it depends on the weather to be able to do it. So like you need like freezing temperatures at night and then like ideally in like the 40s during the day. And that's what really gets you good production to make it like really worth it, you know, where you're like going out and collecting buckets and they're like full and you're really getting a lot. Not your goat Because, you know, if you're going out collecting buckets and each one only has an inch in it, like it's pretty much the same amount of work as it is to go get full buckets but we'll probably start setting taps like this is really good sugaring weather yeah, right now today. yeah 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 we should have taps out right now but we don't we should we should but we don't and i mean we're slacking people think canada vermont usually but they just have that temperature range okay. more in their climate up yeah and then for a longer period a longer of time period where of time. here in missouri it'll be end of january through february and that's about it like okay. maybe good six weeks or so but up in you know the northeast yeah, you know, then you have freezing temperatures at night and then it gets above freezing during the day. So the plant, like the cadmium uh, cadmium layer that's the vascular layer below the bark, you know, kind of like freezes and then it kind of restricts and it lets all the sap flow. And so that's how you get like a really good production on all your trees. And so, and then some sugaring operations, they'll like just string cord through the entire place and they put like a light suction on it and stuff. And that helps a lot too. You know, we don't do a ton. I think the most we've ever made is like, I think we one year we did like 50 gallons of syrup yeah. that we made, which okay. like, it's a 50 to one reduction. 50 to one, yeah. Yeah, 40 okay. to one, I think. Yeah. We ran it through reverse osmosis one year, which kept the cook time down, but it changed. You didn't get as good of a ratio of reduction as you did. We just, just straight boiling it without RO. So then you have a, a sugar shack here? Not really. I welded up like a- um, An evaporator. An evaporator. It's just like a double pan. And then we- laid a bunch of fire brick and cinder blocks and set a chimney and made just like this big cooking area. But it'd be nice to have it in a shack. So when it rains, if it does rain on us, it doesn't, you know, we're not like boiling off all the other water that's dumping in there at the same time. But the thing is, you have to like babysit this fire and just watch boiling water all day. And it's, it's nice and fun, you know, in the daytime, you're like, you're hanging out, you're drinking some beer, having some brats, but then it gets dark and sure. It, keeps going and going and going and well i mean it's, it's it smells amazing i mean my, my grandfather had a did some sugaring i guess his name was jack so people call him sugar shack jack 
And then later on, my uncle sort of did as well because he had a ton of trees and they had that like tap system where it just, you know, it's just like this tubing that comes down, like you were mentioning. But yeah, I mean, like who doesn't like maple syrup? I mean, that's gotta be crazy. It's awesome. It's just time consuming. And then keeping that fire going and also weather dependent because here in Missouri, like you just, you never know. But hopefully this week will be a really good sugaring week and we can start doing that. What uh, surprised you about starting your farm? I would, that's probably, I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of things that probably most, most things were surprising, but is there anything? You know, we talked about, you know, how long it takes from like starting a seed in the garden to getting that harvest. And it's pretty quick, you know, that's like five months overall, like that's a pretty quick turnaround. But when you're starting with breeding a new breed of pigs or getting your first baby goat, well, it's going to be at least two years before you're going to get any milk from that goat, or it's going to be at least two and a half years before you see what, what the meat is like. I mean, your new type of pig that you're breeding and raising out. So, you know, like you, you have these ideas and then you, either literally or figuratively, like plant the seeds. And then they're like, well, I guess I'll, we'll see how this huge investment turns out in two years. You know, so it's that patience and understanding of like, you know, launching it, seeing how it goes, possibly failing at it, and then having to try again. And that whole process might be a couple of years. That was really a difficult learning experience for yeah, me for sure. too. I think for me, it was just like a much more kind of in tune with nature and schedule and stuff like you know be you know normally if you like work in an office or if you have like a inside job the fact that it's super windy today is like not really that big of a deal like you're like oh you're driving on the highway to work you're like i kind of get blown around a little bit but like that's about it whereas if it's you know raining off and on you know you're like yeah it looks like it rained a little bit today but like for us being like super just like cognizant of like exactly what the weather is doing and comparing what it's doing this year to what it's done over the course of the last 10 years. And like that effect on the bottom line of what you're doing, like economically, and then also like just tangibly, like, you know, how it affects the different growth of plants, like, you know, being like, okay, well, we're getting a lot of rain. So that means we're going to have lots of like fungal issues on the tomatoes. And so we need to plan for that. Or it's been super, super hot and dry. So we're going to need to really stay up on water for the pigs or like it's crazy windy and it's going to stay looking at the weather continuing to be windy. So we need to get out in the weed cloth we use in the garden. We need to really stake that down because there's nothing shittier than spending all day laying weed cloth. You come up the next day and it's all like ripped up and blown across the garden and you've got tons of plants that uprooted with it. And it just takes two days to put it all down. And then it takes like two hours for it just all get deleted and things like that. I didn't really think about all that stuff before I started farming. It was just sort of like, yeah, you know, there's weather and stuff like like last night, the power went out for like an hour. And we're looking at the map at Amron, and it was like just us. It was like a special little thing for us. Yeah, I guess. so we didn't, yeah. There's like 85 people in this little valley that lost power. That was it. But, but when the power goes out, it affects a lot of things. Yeah, we got baby chicks, and so they don't have a heat lamp anymore. We got baby goats, and so they don't have a heat lamp anymore. We have a walk-in that's full of, you know. Our product. Product, yeah. like frozen meat. And if it's the summer, it's full of vegetables. We got, you know, and then just the normal things that everybody deals with and you have no power. Like, you know, I was like, oh man, we're watching Star Wars Clone Wars. I was really right into that episode and now I'm not going to get to finish it. And like, you know, I got to go get like the candles and the lights and like all the normal stuff you deal with and the power goes out. But we lost power, what was it? 
a couple months ago in the when it was really cold, I'd like, you know, get up and go and get like the generators out and like put them by the greenhouse and like so just in case, because we had a bunch of starts in there, we could put a heater in there and then we had to get another one going because we have walk-ins. Ryan is doing a bunch of charcuterie and other things like that. So those have to have, you know, steady humidity and temperature. And so being able to like the weather and, and things like that affects stuff a little bit more drastically. And so you're a lot more aware of it, I think, than I've ever been before. So some people have make lists, but I mean, it seems like your lists would be endless. Like, how do you, how do you clear your mind then in order to sleep? I mean, like, do you have... Making like, lists. <laughs> lots of lists, yeah. There's like, like one right yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's how we both kind of operate off of like, you know, to-do lists and, and that kind of stuff too. And then with farming though, you have to have like, let go of some control you know, which is hard for me. That's a hard lesson to learn. But we always say like one of our farming mottos as well, there's always next yeah, year. Maybe next year. Okay. I guess you maybe know. next year. So if like we have a huge like crop failure or the garden just absolutely goes to shit with weeds because we're building a whole kitchen, that kind of thing. You know what? There's always next year, you know, so we have to let some things go. I started doing a bunch of time blocking. Blocking that sort of helps out a bit too because I got like the farm and then yeah, the church, yeah, it's skate laborious. And then BLA studios. That's me and the city museum guys have like another fabrication company. Now that we build just city museum stuff all over the place for all sorts of people other than the city museum and still some for the city museum. And then the, Skate Laborious is like a old church I got around the time I got the farm that we built like a skate park and a graffiti gallery in and it's like a youth center in North St. Louis. And so between kind of juggling those three projects, I started like blocking, doing like a time blocking thing on and that, that that's been pretty helpful. I still screw it up constantly, but I'm late to everything. But it helps me not to feel so terrible. But everybody else is still probably real mad at me for always being like 30 minutes late to everything. But I don't completely miss appointments anymore. So Sure. I mean, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah, I'm moving in a good direction. Right. Um, so you found creative ways to bring people to your farm. Can you tell me about, for example, your farm dinners? Sure. So that came out of, uh, it was mid-pandemic. We had just had a baby. And we, as we were saying before, like the whole restaurant industry just was non-existent. And that was 80% of our business. And we had this new baby. So we're like, we got to do something. We, we gotta, had the CSA. That we had the CSA. But, you know, that wasn't a whole. And then there at the beginning, the, the farmer's markets were shut down there for a while too. So we had to do something and we had to go in a new direction with the farm too, because you were getting really busy with the church and with BLA too. Right. We need, we had to make some big business decisions. And we weren't doing our own CSA at the time. We were producing vegetables for someone else. And that partnership was not ideal. And so we needed to figure out something else. We had people relying on us, not, not just like a baby, but like people who work for us and stuff that we needed to they needed something too. So we had to, it was like, we got to figure it out. Yeah. So we were looking for like just new business partners. We wanted somebody with like, that was looking to have a farm of their own or something. I don't know. We, we knew that we needed to bring in some big guns to help us out. We talked to a lot of people and like, there's tons of people all the time are always telling us how they want to get into farming. And then, so like when it cat time, we had an opportunity, we we're looking for partners. We uh, reached out to a bunch of those people. Um, and most of them, we're like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to get into farming. And then they came out here and we're like, all right, so this is what it is. And they're just like, never mind. No. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> never mind. You know, it's, it's, I think it's, uh, it's not a, not a nine to five. Sort yeah. Of no, I think for out. a lot of folks, it's like really good in principle, but not sure. so much in practice. Like I meet that with people a lot. A lot of people 
even farmers I know they enjoy being farmers, but not so much farming, if you know what I mean. Like being a farmer's got I think it's a lot more interesting of a career, but when it comes down to like pulling weeds on your hands and knees for like seven hours straight, that one's not anything. It's like, I just want to pull weeds all day long. It's like some people maybe. Yeah. You know. But then we hired, hollered at Ryan who, and we were like, do anybody we're like, yeah. yeah. And uh, we're like, Hey, do you know anybody who would like maybe want to do this with us? He's like, yeah, me, me. Like, I want to do Oh, that. okay. And so we were talking with, this is Ryan McDonald and his wife, Ashley Batiste, and we've known and had a working relationship with for the past nine years. And so we sat down with them and we're like, well, let's maybe do some pop-ups and let's just see how they go. So we did our first pop-up and it ended up being inside the barn because it was going to rain that day. We, we were going to Yeah, we were going to have it outside, kind of like outstanding in the field style farm dinner like we had in the past. But then the weather looked like it was going to rain. So we're like, oh, okay, well, let's take our storage barn that has... I don't ten know, years 10 shit. years worth of just crap that we just threw in there. Let's just clean that whole thing out in a week. And we rented tables, put them in there, and it ended up working out really, really nice. So That was great. So we did, um, that was with Justin McMillan, and then we did a second one with um, Bob Brazil and Chris Bork, and that one sold out in a matter of days. And then we did a third one with uh, Laura Nalick from Balkan Tree Box, and that one sold out in a matter of minutes. The Balkan Tree Box was the, the third one you did? Yeah. Ah. All right. Yeah, Lauren sold out in like, I think, because I mean, and, and then arguably like we we have like a crazy retention rate, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like 35% of the tickets pretty much at every, the reservations for all the dinners are just like returning, re- returning people mm-hmm. that just want to come to another one. And then Lauren had a big guest list for hers of people who had reserved spots at the dinner anyway. And so when we actually put out the reservations, it was like... It sold out in minutes. Yeah, and, it sold out in like and 15 so, or 20 minutes. So what we had to do is we expanded the barn, remember? Yeah, I, knocked, I cut a wall down. I cut a wall down and then we expanded to be able to make room. For Lauren's dinner. For Lauren's dinner. And then by the end of that dinner, that was like in November 2021, we're like, you know what? This could really work. And so then that winter, we talked with Ryan and Ashley and kind of came up with like a whole new a new business idea and came up with idea for the processing kitchen. And then we decided to expand last year into doing a full season from May to November with a couple other smaller events added in. So last yeah. year was our very first full season. And then we were building the kitchen during that season too. Yeah. So it would be, we were doing dinners every other week. And sometimes we'd have like a two week break in between them, depending on how it was. And so we would like take the kitchen and it would be like a giant construction site. You know, everything's like all the materials and tools are like kind of puked out into the general like barn area. And then we'd set like two days before the dinner would start. We'd have to pack everything up and clean it all up and like move everything out and turn it back up into a nice dining room. Somebody wants to eat dinner in. And then we do the dinner and then immediately turn it back into a construction site again. And, you know, and so the dinner, you know, we'd, set the kitchen up at different spots or it'd just be like unfinished. We put plywood over the holes. Nobody's like stepping in open plumbing when they're running around plating stuff. And it was just like construction, kitchen, construction, kitchen, construction, kitchen, back forth, back forth for four months, mm-hmm. maybe four months. I mean, it, so, I mean, it's iterative and I mean, it's sold out. The proof of concept was fantastic. What kind of feedback were you getting initially? And that was cool. It was like lightning in a bottle. Like people. Yeah. People, our guests were really excited just to come out and have a new experience. And then just kind of see how everything came together because the whole idea is that we would take produce from the garden and then obviously like our pigs or our dairy goats, we would use everything from the farm and then everything's cooked over wood fired. So there's no gas, there's no electric, there's no hood system. It's a really like primal feel for the menu too, because then that all changes depending on what's available that week. 
And then the way we set everything up, everything, everybody sits at like communal tables. And so everybody's naturally like meeting with other people and, and talking and, you know, sharing this shared experience together. And people really love like the camaraderie of it and, you know, the style of food and just the warmness, the service. And then during cocktail hour, people walk around and see the goats, they see the pigs, they see the garden, they see the pond. And it's just like really fun experience that I don't think a lot of people you know, get anywhere else, at least not around St. Louis. It seems like a, a fusion between agritourism and farm to table concepts. Yeah, pretty much. And it's... um. They're a lot of fun. And so we, we try to do stuff that kind of make our own spin, like, you know, like our farm is, you know, like covered in graffiti and murals and stuff from all the different artists I know from the church. And so we, uh, you know, probably next year we'll have a bunch of live art going on while it's going on. We'll get the rest of these barns all painted up. You know, we always have a band playing and then everything's live fire. So like just the cooking itself is very exhibitionist. Like, you know, everything is we welded up, me and the and Dan and Joe and the guys from BLA, we made like these giant birdcage shaped, you know, cookers. And then we we're fabricating all sorts of different wood fire cooking apparatuses to cook stuff with. So when people get there, there's just like, you know, 20 ducks hanging over open fire and like, you know, a bunch yeah, of... Yeah. And then you can go out and talk to the chefs and... Just ask, walk right you, out there. Yeah. And know. just see what they're cooking and kind of see what's coming up for dinner that night. And, and they're out there splitting wood with axes yeah. and like stoking fires and moving coals from one spot to another. And like you can, you know, so it's all very intimate. I think a lot of people don't ever get to kind of experience food cook that way. Like, right. you know, there's, there's not a lot of guys who do it. Like if there's people out there and people have watched, you know, like, I don't know, like Francis, Francis Malman. Malman and stuff like that. And a lot, there's guys that definitely cook that way, but they're, they're kind of few and far between. And I know Gerard's done a lot of, you know, wood fired stuff at his restaurants. There's, there's Ryan's been doing it for years and years. And there's guys in town that do it. But not in the setting where you can like go down to the garden and see where they got the tomatoes that are going to be on your dinner plate. And yeah. And like the pigs, you know, they're like wandering around up there. Like there's one of them right there. And then right. like we're eating one right here. Yeah. And like it's, everything is like within a stone's throw of where you're going to eat it at. And so I think in that way, it's kind of unique. Like everything is, you know, the, the metal shop where we welded all the stuff that they're cooking on. It's like right up there and the garden's there and the goats are there and the pigs are there. It's all, we try to keep it as farm to table as we can. And that like most of the things are not miles. They're like within a hundred yards of where the table's at. I guess you're wood fired cooking operation out there. I mean, it, it's definitely functional, but it's also really artistic. I mean, I, I see like, you know, there's, it's elaborate. I mean, it's got chains. It's got these, I mean, I've, I remember seeing these cabbages being smoked, you know, on hooks yeah. and, and everything. And you, you said primal as a, as a good adjective. And yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's fun. We have like a whole product line plan that we're probably going to launch in the next year or so. Like we're I mean, all that stuff is designed to be like basically flat pack and created like we design. That's the other kind of industrial design thing is we're doing kind of R&D and product research on it. And we started applying for patents and other stuff like that for different operations and different setups. Like uh, Dan designed this really cool kind of locking mechanism that lets you move the grills for the um, yakitori grill up and down really easily. And just a, a bunch of different little products and extras there that are, it's been helpful because with Ryan, he's got so much experience in wood fire cooking. That's I mean, what he's been doing for like 10 years. So like he, he's used a bunch of different people's and different companies' products for wood fired and knows like which ones work and why they work and which ones suck and like why they suck. And like, this would be good for like you at home in your backyard. But if you want to cook dinner for a hundred people, it's terrible. And this is great for a hundred people, but it's, uh, this is good in the middle. And so we're able to 
you know, work with Ryan, me and the other fabricators to design some of that stuff. So it's kind of cool because it's like also a proving ground for a lot of the concepts. We'll be able to like design some stuff and then be like, all right, I think this is going to work okay if we had to cook dinner for a hundred people. And we'll find out next week if that's true. And then we'll just go cook dinner for a hundred people on it. And we'll be like, yeah, it works. Or like, that sucks. Now that was terrible. It's, <laughs> let's back to the drawing board. Throw that thing in the scrap dumpster. It's done. And so that's pretty helpful too. But also it sort of showcases all that stuff because like, and which is good for the dinners because it's like a spectacle, like you said. And then also it's good for just promoting the, the gear that we have and being able to launch a product line. That's all in the works too. We have uh, five or six different designs for like major kind of cooking setups that we're going to probably launch soon. We have a couple that we're going to test out this year. We want to like really get them dialed in before we start putting them out there. But the birdcage one's pretty much done, but it's got a bunch of attachments that we still have to do. Like we have a canopy attachment, we have like a carousel attachment. That's what I was seeing, the one with like the the, the cabbages hanging from in the top. It looks yeah. like a birdcage, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. And okay. so that one will have another mounting point in it where you can mount stuff to the top. So right now you can hang chains where we have like a carousel. So if you imagine like it has like eight prongs that hang down, so you don't have to like reach inside the fire and hang stuff on chains. You can if you want to, but you could also have this carousel that spins. And so then you could just have a cart of food and stand in one spot and load up a bunch of cabbages and turn it and load up a bunch of cabbages and turn it and, you know, and then spin that thing over different parts of the fire. And we have a bunch of grills that like snap into it. So you can have grills along the inside, grills all around the outside. So you can make everything like infinitely modifiable. And so that's why we started patenting everything and, and kind of getting a lot of these kind of proprietary mechanical systems that we designed kind of locked in and it should be pretty fun. Like we're looking forward to uh, using them this year and seeing how they work. Sure. They seem like they're going to work great, but everything seems like it's going to work great, doesn't it? Like it always seems like it will. And then, and then we'll see what actually happens. So with the 2020 farm dinner season, are you anticipating maybe you said May through, through November? Yes. Yeah. So the barn's unheated, so it's hard to do anything past November, although we've had some private events in there after November, but uh, usually it's going to be like, you know, two a month, maybe three a month between May and the very beginning of November. Okay. Exciting. Um, beyond that, what's on the horizon for, for your farm? A bunch of stuff. I'm doing a bunch of hip camp. That's been pretty cool. That like was another thing. We're like, hey, you know, we found out about that online. We're like, oh, we'll just try it out. And then it's just like sold out every single weekend. We're really lucky. We have this awesome swimming hole that's all fed by a massive freshwater spring that we have on the property. And so for a while, we didn't really do any agro tourism at all. Like I was like, I don't want a bunch of people coming down here. That sucks. We have this nice little private spot. And then we started doing it and they made a bunch of money. And I was like, well, I'll just put up more gates and cameras and I'll buy some more guns and I'll feel better. <laughs> right. and, like, uh, and so the hip camp thing, we didn't, you know, we'd have our friends at that little swimming hole campground and that was fine. And we'd also invite like other friends of ours that like wanted to go on flow trips and stuff. Friends of ours that were in like kind of like mixed race relationships. You know, it's like you kind of go down to Southern Missouri to go on a flow trip and like someone or just like someone always has to say some shit to our kids. Like, you know, or like, you know, their wife wears a hijab or something like that. Like some like drunk redneck is going to say something and it's like, and we're like, just come to our place. No one's going to bother you. It's private. You can, you know, fishing and swimming and camping. And, and then we realized that like lots of people want that. And so we just put it on hip camp and it worked out as being another sales avenue too, because then we're like, okay, well, while you're here, if you want to buy pork or eggs or whatever, do a farm tour, firewood or have a farm tour, then just hit us up and we'll take you around the farm on a, you know, on a, side by side or bring eggs or pork down there. And it wound up being like a decent little extra revenue stream. And that helped with the other stuff too, because then people want to come out to a dinner and they want to camp out. We're like, yeah, camp out, you know, and you can, don't have to worry about driving back to St. Louis. You can patronize the hell out of that bar and then just go down to the 
campground and crashing your tent. That's amazing. What about, uh, do you see yourself making any cheese out of your milk eventually? Or is that something that's a little... Well, it's illegal with the raw milk laws. Because I mean, I thought like after like eight months or something, raw milk cheese could be... So you can sell it person to person. Like we can make you cheese, but we can't have cheese for sale that anybody could buy. Okay. Which is like... And we do make chef for ourselves Mm -hmm. and it's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like a lot of the agricultural laws, like the way they write them are kind of... I don't know. They're like eye rolling sort of like, you know, it's like, so I can't sell raw milk at a market, but I can say that if you ask me to buy raw milk online, I can meet you at the market and you can pay for it there and pick it up, but I can't just have it for sale. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like- We can uh, bring like pre-sold. Yeah, pre-sold stuff there. The market. You can just be a pickup point. So like with like Missouri, like cannabis laws and stuff like that, like- like I think they were saying you can get a license for medical cannabis for like mood alteration or, you know, anxiety. So you can like go to a doctor and they'll be like, why do you need medical cannabis? You're like, oh yeah, you know, I, uh, makes me feel really good when I get super, super high. And they're like, feel really good. And they're just like, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Mood alteration and your anxiety. Got it. You know, like, yeah. you know, we're really careful with the, you know, we don't do anything illegal and get in trouble and of get course, shut of down. And so it's just different than, than let's say Europe or something. Where, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Missouri does have really good raw milk laws. Oh, yeah. Comparatively, it's excellent. Yes. I mean, some states see raw milk as just like poison. It's poison. You know, like, uh, some laws are really, really strict. Missouri is really great with, you know, selling raw milk. But as far as the cheese goes, I mean, we make cheese for ourselves. And then I think this year to do some, you know, cave-aged hard cheeses or things like that, we could definitely experiment with. And I like to expand our cheese operation that way. Other thing with like the the raw milk loss too, like if you, John, would want to pay me to Mm -hmm. make cheese for you, I can do that. Okay. But, you know, but, you know, just like selling it like open, you know, just having chef for everybody, I can't do. You got to have a licensed dairy for that. Yeah. And I don't think going down the licensed dairy route is something we really... No, that's a lot of extra red tape. That's uh, too much. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it seems like it would be too much at least. Yeah, it is too much. Yeah, it is too much. But Missouri in general, I think, for raw milk and cheese laws is a lot better. Like, I know in some states, like, if you've seen that movie Farmageddon, yeah, it's a... I mean, there's like, I think it was Massachusetts. Like they like consider like poison. They're like farms like ours. They're like raiding them with SWAT teams and like dumping the milk out on the ground. Um, And it's just like, it's a little, it's a little much, you know, like, you know, like zip tying people in front of their kids and hauling them off to jail because they're selling raw milk to their neighbors. It's pretty ridiculous. So like within the, the span, the spectrum of milk laws, Missouri is awesome. Like you can sell it. You just can't retail it without letting the USDA and the FDA inspect your very specific facility. And I'm not building that facility. <laughs> no. Got done building one facility. I'm all facilitated out. Yeah. I'll wait a couple of years before I have to build a dairy. Well, the thing too is then like we would have to, all the girls have to be on a, a milk machine, you know, on the milk line. And yeah, I really, hand milk. yeah. And I really love hand milking. You know, that's, it's just such a nice intimate, special time, just you and the goat and hand milking. And yeah, then squirt it right in your coffee. Yes, I do do that. And, uh, but that would go away. And I, that's something I don't really want to lose either. And you'd have the dairy attached to the milk room and refrigerated lines that all goes into a vat. And, you know, and so, you know, it's like also like the layout on your land, where are you going to put that facility? How do you get power to it? You know, you have to have a huge amount of refrigeration. So you're digging up the ground, burying lines, upgrading your electrical service. Like there's just like a whole lot to it in order to be able yeah, to do and it. And everything else would go away. Like we wouldn't be able to do like pigs probably or garden as much. Like a lot of our other systems would, we would have to give up because the dairy would take so much. Yeah, and it's like, and then why? Like, you know, 
it's like, it's like because we, I don't know if we want to be a dairy. No. Know? And like, if we're really into cheese, you know, it's right, like, right, it's right. Like, oh man, I just love cheese. Love it so much more than all the other stuff we're doing. But like, I, I don't, you know, I don't think, no, I, don't I think like everything. I yeah. like everything we do, not just. Yeah, variety is the spice of life. Yeah. If someone were considering farming, what advice which could you share? Oh, I tell people this all the time. Don't. <laughs> no, I mean, do it. Like, definitely do it. But like, I always, people, whenever people ask me about getting into farming, I always tell them, like, if they live in the city, to go to there, if they have a backyard, like, go find the two points in your backyard that are furthest from each other and then dig two holes deep enough that you can't like see out of them anymore and then use a wheelbarrow to swap the dirt from one hole to the other and fill them back in and when you get done with that you're like oh it's so bad then like maybe like start looking into like getting some land and stuff but if you're not down to just like pointlessly dig holes and fill them back in and just like brutal brutal physical labor almost just for the sake of brutal physical labor like maybe look at other career paths because it's a lot of that like it's a lot of like nature is unforgiving it's cruel. Well, it's not cruel. People always say it's cruel, but I feel like cruelty insinuates intent. And like nature doesn't have any intent. It just is. It just is what it is. And sometimes, you know, like I remember one year we had a late frost. When the apple blossoms got? Yeah, well, it was, May. It was like we had a frost in real May. late in May. And so we already had all the tomatoes out. Like we had grown them from seed in the greenhouse and up potted them three times. And then we had put them out in the garden. And now we, we wait. But we that year, it was supposed to get down to, you know, like about 30. And which means down in here, our little valley would be even colder. Um, and so we're like, all right, great. We're looking. And so like that just kill all the tomato crops. So we had some row covers, but we didn't have nearly enough. And so we like went out there with like every bed sheet, pillowcase, blanket, t-shirt, sock, piece of cloth that we had in our entire house mm -hmm. and like bricks and rocks and whatever to hold them down and just like because we're like all right if we like at that point like if we lost our tomato crop we were just like completely fucked and we're like well and, and we can't go back and do it you know we just planted 300 tomato plants yeah, that we sure. grew from start that were all custom ordered by chefs for specific things that they were waiting on we can't like there's not like a coming back from that and so we just stayed up all night saving the tomato crops. I think we lost like one or two, but like, and we were taking like the covers off the cushions on the couch and like, you know, like whatever we had to do, whatever we had to do to get it done. If you're not willing to like do those types of things, then like you're, the, the situations that require those things are going to happen one day or another. And it'll tank your whole ship if you don't, you know, take care of it when it does. All right. So then the flip side, then if it requires all this labor, what are you going to get out of it? Hopefully some tomatoes in six months. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it kind of depends like um, on what you're, at least for me, like, I mean, you're not going to make a ton of money. It's not like you're going to be like, man, I'm still rolling it off my farm. Like even guys with like massive cattle operations aren't making like tons. I mean, you have to get to a pretty high scale before you're just raking it in off of farming. You're not going to have like a small biodiverse family farm and just be, you know, caked up. Going and buying out a, a Bentley. No, no. no we're, Do we're, you see any farmers driving Bentleys? No. no. We're real Walmart. But we always say like we didn't get into farming to make a living. We got into farming to make a life. Yeah. It's, so that's um, what we get out of it. Yeah, it's awesome. Like it's the most challenging and rewarding thing I've ever done. And like... I mean, we can go out there and cuddle baby goats right now. I mean, you're telling me that's not awesome? Like that's... You know, that's pretty awesome, you know, and then just to to be able to feel resilient and self-sustainable. And for me, too, it I don't know, it just teaches you a lot of life lessons like every year. Humility, a lot of humility, a lot of patience, a lot of perseverance. It just makes you like a stronger person. It's like, like real human, too. Like yeah. It feels for a while there. I was really into like bushcraft and like wilderness survival. I think it's the best analogy 
I can come up with it. And we were, I was like, I made like a bow drill. You feel like a bow drill? No. Like you, you cut a stick that's shaped like a bow and then you make cordage from, I made from like a yucca plant and like made rope. And then you find like a really soft piece of wood like cedar and a really hard piece of wood like oak. And you make a little platter and you cut a little notch in it. And then you make like the bow drill and you're like crouching down with your arm locked on your knee and you saw it back and forth to make a friction fire to make okay. like a, yeah, make yeah. a little ember and then when now. you get the ember it kind of falls to the hole in that little notch and you got your little tinder pile ready right there and you're like oh oh shit oh shit and you pick it up and you dump it in your tinder and you're blowing on it and then like it like you know your arms are like burning from like pumping this thing for you know 10 15 minutes to get an ember and then you put it on there and blow it and when it finally bursts into flames you can like feel like like your ancestors just be like yes like it's like you very have your castaway moment yeah you know like yeah i have created fire <laughs> like but it's like very like like you said like primal it's like something like farming is like super rewarding like deep in your dna like there's something about like raising generations of animals and breeding them and then raising them and knowing that how they were raised and what they ate and then like butchering them and eating them and like feeding your family and feeding your friends and knowing you're putting like it's like more it's like extremely like rewarding in a way that like i haven't really found in a lot of other professions and then also like you know it's like being self-sustainable and self-sufficient like like during the pandemic when everyone you remember that point when everyone was like freaking out like spraying their groceries down with bleach and yeah. like everyone it was like unfortunately peak, yes peak hysteria right and like everyone's like making sourdough bread and like getting into prepping and stuff like we like we were like getting ready and like we were freaking out about our business but as far as like supply chain stuff or whatever like i wasn't super concerned like we had pigs and goats and chickens and ducks and vegetables it was in the summertime too so like everything was going well like i knew we were able to i was like we're not going to starve like you know and if we had to be on quarantine we have 120 acres to <laughs> roam around roam safely around. you sure. know and no lack of stuff to do and then not only that but we could take care of our people too and so like you know we were able to we produce a ton of food it's, it's good to know that like us and all our people are took care of. Like, you know, we can, and more than just financially. And it's a good way to spend your time too. Like splitting firewood and stuff is, is gratifying. And I also like the disconnect from like the modern, like materialistic world too. Like down here, especially in this valley, like we don't have good internet at all. No. So we hardly have, you know, internet. We don't have like cable or TV. We watch DVDs, you know, we still do that. And so like, we're not sitting down at the end of the day and watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians or some whatever, like people come up to me like, oh, have you seen the show? I'm like, nope. <laughs> have you seen this show? Like, oh, it's on Hulu. I'm like, I don't, we don't have any streaming services, anything like that. So I really do appreciate that kind of like disconnect from yeah. super mainstream kind of world because then like my my thoughts and feelings and desires and wishes are all going into like the farm the business the family the ideas for for the garden or what pretty mural can we paint what kind of cool art project can i do for the barn things like that instead of sinking into a couch and watching some mindless Ever raising our kid too like yeah. for our daughter it's nice like like the other day you know when she was like a little kid we're like running around through the creek and like she works the farmer's market with autumn every single week and like when she like plays as a kid, she has like a little food truck thing over there and she'll be like, ice cream for sale, $5, please. <laughs> you know, it's like a cool environment. Like she's milking goats and helping pull weeds. And like, it's, I feel like that, you know, that's sort of a, a lot of that kind of old school stuff is just sort of like going away now. 
And I think a lot of times people don't realize what they're losing. You know, like I think about when I was a kid, like, you know, you just like me and my brothers and all the like kids around us would just like be on bicycles and just like be gone. Right. Just get on bikes. And like, I don't think kids do that anymore. At least not like that. Like, at least I don't hear about people with, that I know with kids that are, you know, the age I was 12, 13, where they're like, oh yeah, my son and his, you know, his little brother and all their boys, about eight of them, they just got on their bikes and I don't know, they'll be back when the sun goes down. Right, I man. guess like they put you in jail for that now. Like you can't do that. The other thing that I find with farming and other farmers and stuff is that like some of the guys I knew growing up, like the guys I was talking about the city museum, like I grew up, you know, working on a lot of construction sites and you'd have like, it'd always be like this gray haired dude with a handlebar mustache with that green Stanley cooler coffee thermos and like a baseball hat that's like curved into like an arch. And he always had like a monosyllabic name like Kurt or Roy or Bob or Bill. And like those old school dudes could just build everything. Like from pouring the foundation to putting the shingles on the house, like every every single thing, plumbing, electric, welding, auto mechanics, they could fix and build anything. And those dudes are a dying breed. Like there's just not guys like that anymore. But out in the country on these farms, there is like, there's tons of guys like that because you have to be like that. And I guess in a way, like for me, like I wanted to be like that. I wanted, those are the types of guys that I like looked up to or these super grizzled old kind of country every like When you talk to them, you're like, how do you know everything? Like how to build everything? And like, how do you understand like the, you know, mating and breeding cycles of a dozen different animals and like how to do this and how to build that and how to fix this and how to listen to the sound that a car's making and know what's wrong with it. Like, you know, and how exactly how to fix it and that, you know, like you get that type of breadth of knowledge by like having no other choice but to have it. And like farming is how you do that because like you have to, because you don't have money to pay somebody to do it and it needs to get fixed one way or another. So you just got to figure it out. And it's sort of like a gauntlet in that way. That's to me is sort of like what I get out of it is sort of an intangible thing. And I think that's, it's a hard thing to measure with a metric, the value of that. You know, I think that's kind of what it comes down to is that like, I think nowadays more than ever, people know the, the price of everything and the value of nothing. You know what I mean? Like, so a lot of stuff you get from farming is at a high price, but it's like extremely valuable. That's impressive. I mean, Dave, Autumn, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. Mm -hmm. Thanks for coming yeah, out, thanks man. thanks for coming out. Really appreciate it. All right, and with that, thanks again to... Autumn Sai and Dave Bloom of Such and Such Farm. We really appreciate having the chance to sit down and talk about your farm and homestead. You can find their products at the Tower Grove Farmer's Market, also on their website, suchandsuchfarm.com. And Tower Grove Farmer's Market is in St. Louis, Missouri, folks. This is Tangled Taproot, a production of Milk and Hummus. I'm Kristen. I'm Jackson. And I'm John Cowan. And please come back and listen to us. Like and subscribe. Send us your thoughts and you can find us anywhere that you could you listen to your podcast. Tangled Taproot at milkandhummus.com. Until next time. Mm -hmm.